I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm your host, Shri Krishna, and with me, I have my co-host, Ritul Gaur. Our guest on the show today is Syed Kamil, who works as a consultant with the Speyside Group. Previously, he has worked with CPR and NIPFP and has been actively involved in regulatory governance and related policy field. Welcome, Kamil. Welcome, Ritul. Thank you, Shri Krishna. Thanks, Shri. Today, we will be discussing a very interesting idea a concept which I'm sure many, many listeners are familiar with, but yet might not have pinpointed it. It's called the Millennial Subsidy. And to talk about this, I would like to invite Ritul. Ritul, why don't you begin by telling us what Millennial Subsidy is? Thanks, Sri. So today we're going to talk about Millennial Lifestyle Subsidy. And as a beneficiary of this subsidy, I want to start by quoting Derek Thompson, who wrote a very interesting piece in the, in the Atlantic, which sort of sparked off this whole debate about millennial lifestyle subsidy and what it means. So, quote unquote, as I pointed out three years ago, if you woke up on a Casper mattress, walked out with a Peloton, Uber to a WeWork, ordered on DoorDash for lunch, took a lift home and ordered dinner through Postmates, only to realize your partner had already started on a blue apron meal, your household had, in one day, interacted with eight unprofitable companies that collectively lost about $15 billion in one year. So the larger idea is that a good part of the entire last decade, from 2007-2008 to the post-2000, post the global financial crisis, the lifestyle that we were given by these big corporate giants was kind of a subsidy because when we were ordering food through these apps, when we were ordering as Uber, you would like to call it your personal driver through the app, we weren't paying for the amount that it costed, but somebody else was paying. And it was money largely by these venture capital firms who were sold into the idea that this is a strategy to acquire customers. So you, I mean, it was predatory pricing. You really offer goods and services at a very dirt cheap rate. Services essentially at a dirt cheap rate in order to acquire customer. And when you reach a point where it's scalable and you have a solid customer base, you can start charging them. And I think now we are in that stage. There's a whole list of factors that have contributed to the withdrawal of this subsidy. But yes, the lifestyle subsidy that was given to us, urbanish, professionalish, student, elite people, is what, quote-unquote, the millennial subsidy is. That's right. And I think this is something which most of us urban-dwelling folks in cities in India have also experienced, right? And what started off with the cab-hailing revolution, thanks to Ola and Uber, and then the food ordering services, Zomato and Speaky. And I still remember when it started off. And we had these fancy discounts, you know, like some 50% off, 80% off, free delivery, whatnot. And now it has shifted to groceries in the later years with, you know, folks like Grofers, which is Blinkit now, Big Basket and all coming into the market. And the whole idea has been to offer these attractive deep discounts to get customers on board, to get customers familiar with the new kind of service that is being offered. 
in the market and do that at very cheap rates so that the company can build a customer base very quickly and companies can grow and scale up faster. So Kamil, I would like to bring you in and just start off with what are your thoughts on millennial lifestyle subsidy, which we have all become very accustomed to. I want to sort of chime in first, Ray, just to, to this pose a question to Kamil first, that while you, we were getting all this discount and while we were sort of starting to live that life, I mean, which was new, you know, to be able to book a cab and book a really expensive car at dirt cheap rate. Were you aware that I can't afford this life, but this was being given by someone at a subsidized rate or you sort of just accustomed like, okay, this is how the world works now. Just to, I mean, you both of you can expand on it later, but beginning it with Kamil. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Shri Krishna, first of all, for inviting me to the show. So millennial subsidy for me, I started way back, not that back also now. And I think about it in college when all these new unicorn, not then unicorn, but which became unicorn later, they came in with these discounts as Shri Krishna, Shri Krishna had mentioned. It sort of revolutionized the world for us back then. The way we ordered food, the way we traveled, the way we ordered our goods online. And it sort of gave us a taste of what internet had for us, as in how internet is going to affect our lives. And I think I knew, given the heavy discounts that we were getting back in the days of 60% off, 70% off, 80% off, and all the meals that we had, I sort of knew deep down that this is all heavily discounted. And someday we will have to pay the full price. And back in the days, like, no one really cared about it because as long as you're getting all these discounts, you're good to go. So I think I knew that in the news when you'll read that all these companies are picking up millions and billions of dollars every another year. We knew that this is here to stay. And now that this these things are ending, I think it is going to be interesting, especially in Indian context, I would say, because India is a very price sensitive market. And even though in West, the debate is sort of surrounded by issues of rising prices. In India, I don't know how it's going to manifest because companies do not have that much of room to maneuver and pass on the burden of rising prices to customers because customers might just stop ordering. So even in the West, they did not have those many avenues to cut costs and eventually it got the burden passed down to the customers in india i guess company since india has an unending supply of cheap labor companies have a sort of avenues to cut costs so it might not pass down that much to the customers and hence the policy implications that are going to arise from this unfolding event will also be india specific for us and something that, that i think we will discuss as the show as this episode progresses yeah, so from whatever you said, Kamal, there are many things, many strands which I would like to pick on and unpack. So first was, of course, the fact that this is coming to an end, right? That in itself is a big question. So why did it start? Why is it ending? And secondly, you said that customer behavior in India is very price sensitive. So what is the long-term implications of, you know, all these new services which propped up and gave us an elite lifestyle as opposed to the usual lower middle class lifestyles that people were used to and what future holds for customer behavior and for companies, how does customer acquisition take place? 
And the other thing which you talked about was also the fact of cheap labor, right? So at least in the US context, many economists are now talking about the great resignation and how people are giving up lower paying jobs to move to better opportunities or, you know, simply to take a health or a mental health break and so on, right? And But in India, that's not the case. The cheap labor is still around. We have a great deal of unemployment and we simply cannot afford to have a lot of people out of the job market. So these are the different strands that I would like to open up. And I welcome like both of you to comment on any of these. Maybe you could begin by talking about why why is it ending? Thanks, Sri. Thank you for, for sort of laying that board out. I actually have some thoughts on it. One is to begin with, I necessarily don't agree with Kamal here that one is we might still have cheap labor, but we don't have the capital now. You might have as many drivers as you want, but if you cannot afford a Maruti Suzuki Swift, which is, or if you cannot afford those capital goods, then there is no point of that cheap labor. And plus, I mean, as much as I understand that Indian market is really price sensitive, but the burden of increasing price is being transferred upon us. I mean, we all know Taxi for Sure came with 29 rupees for four kilometers or all the deep discounts that essentially the cab hailing cab services gave us. But now the case is that for three kilometers, you're paying 200, 250 bucks. There was a movement in Bangalore recently wherein the Rapido, the auto company, and plus Ola have a hundred rupee minimum of auto. I remember when I was in college, there was the minimum auto fare was 25 rupees for two kilometers or three kilometers, something like that. So the burden yeah. of increasing prices is being transferred. Yeah. So just to butt in there, so I think the government has actually circled back and the, last week they released an order, Department of Transport in Karnataka has released order, which said that, you know, autos can no longer offer their services on Ola, Uber and Rapido because they were overcharging. And this has not been very convenient to most of us, even for me, who was dependent on, you know, taking these auto rides to office and whenever I go out. But yeah, that's the latest update from Bangalore. But yeah, please continue. Yeah, so I mean, the point being that not just the fact that you've mentioned autos is another threat to touch upon, which is how do people adapt to these increasing prices? But I sort of want to like take a step back and sort of just counter Kamil on the fact that there are sectors which are really hot right now in India, where the VC money is still pumping and their services are still offered at a very nominal rates, which is, I mean, to, to name a few, EdTech, FinTech, these are sectors which still has that policy going on that acquire customers at a dirt cheap rate and then we'll see how to make money out of it. But companies like food ordering, companies like the cab ride hailing, etc., who are giving us those discounts, I don't think that party is still going on. It is not a good time to be a customer to begin with. But yeah, that was just one of the things that I had in my mind. I had to respond. Yeah, so I think the more pertinent point here was also that, you know, how was this millennial subsidy being funded and why is it coming to a close now i can take it and i think it's better you will be take it as a pe lawyer i think you're the best person to sort of explain the whole larger ecosystem behind but yeah the idea was that this historically there were i mean post the global financial crisis the interest rate was really low and the money there were the vcs with with really deep pockets wanted to park their money somewhere and plus, they'd already seen with things like an Amazon, which, I mean, they must have funded like 100 other startups, but one Amazon goes so big that the cost of failure was low, whereas the vis-a-vis the cost of gains was huge because they could, they would take in 
like funding the startup, they can bring the valuation to a certain level. Once it goes at an initial public offering or once it goes public, they can have a safe exit and make those big bucks. So I think the idea was very simple that VCs bought the idea that what these startups were trying to do. So with historically low interest rates and this this whole new, as Kamil had mentioned earlier, that the power and potential of internet, that what it can offer, was a very interesting and lucrative avenue to put this money in. And the idea was fairly simple that you acquire customers at dirt cheap rates and then sort of go forward. But yeah, it worked well. They were able to get that. But now that, I mean, we'll come back to it later, that why is the subsidies ending right now? But I think the idea of spend big, grow big, pay people less is sort of now over. The VCs are now worried about the fact that they don't want to fund startups which are loss making for many, many years now. And plus there are other revenues which are, the Fed has increased rates. So there are other revenues that are giving them higher return, which are safer assets. So they want to move to that. Maybe you, you're the one who should explain it better. So yeah, thanks, Rutul. So for contextualizing the whole issue again, so I think after the global financial crisis, you know, post 2010s, the central banks worldwide wanted growth to pick up. So they lowered the interest rates and this led to a lot of easy money or cheap money in the market. And uh, most of it's found its way to the stock markets in the West. And a lot of it also came to India and other developing countries in the global South through investments made by private equity firms and uh, venture capitalist firms. And these firms were chasing returns on their money. So a lot of this money was invested into early stage startups and new companies which were coming up, offering services on a new technology-driven business model. And what eventually happened was to get a quicker sort of exit from these investments. They forced these companies to offer these services at very cheap rates, right? And once a certain amount of time had passed, maybe six years, eight years, they wanted to list these companies on stock markets and get a good exit at very high valuations so that they can make the buck on their money and take it back to wherever it came from. So this is the long story of millennial subsidy and how we in uh, our city sitting at our homes were beneficiaries of a process which began somewhere in the West and thanks to all these venture capitalists and we folks who were subsidizing all the services that we were enjoying. So, Kamil, I would like to bring you in here. So, on the discussion that we have had so far, would you like to comment? So, where do you stand on this? Do you think the story I painted is fine or are there uh, missing elements? So, I think whatever you said, I do agree with it. Also, the fact that in 90s, right after Soviet collapse and then how new liberal economic theories were gaining ground, more and more countries were adopting free markets approach to allocate resources in the society, which led to a lot of growth, economic growth in all these countries, primarily South Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries. And then since there was so much room to grow, these countries were growing at a tremendous pace, or like pace which were often in double digits. So a lot of these VC firms, pension funds, in order to chase higher returns, they sort of capital flowed from there to these countries because they were getting higher returns in these countries. And also all these developed countries had already reached sort of saturation in their economic growth. So that was also one of the reasons why so much capital flew into our country in late 90s, early 2000, right before the crisis of 2008 and how it also accentuated 
post 2008 when quantitative easing happened so i think this was one more factor which led to such tremendous inflow of capital in i'm sorry kamil but i want to take a like i don't think so that was the cause i mean this was only the promise of internet and this new vc money that got india and particularly like this new startup that that kind of money because post globalization post the soviet collapse they were only funding startups in us which also collapsed with the economic bubble the 1999 and plus the east asian crisis they were terrified of putting money in india and as a matter of fact after pokhran these guys the american companies the american administration was putting sanctions on india so i don't think this was a consequence of post lpg or soviet money as a matter of fact it did get some private investment into india but not so much of vcpe money as first what we got post the global financial crisis i could be wrong but this is my understanding talk- of things i was talking more in general terms of how capital started flowing into the country post when when these countries started opening up and not just particularly vc money vc money was also a part of this general trend right unless you have these regulatory approaches in place in in the country when you have- yeah i agree the west started looking towards east yeah, yeah. sure sure so that i think i agree and i think i think the best way to like come to a conclusion on this debate the little debate that we are having is to you know just check the fdi inflows into the country from these different firms and see how it has grown over the years and i'm definitely sure it picked up a lot in 2010s but it's not like these firms were oblivious to india even before that right so maybe in terms of sheer amounts of the money which came in it picked up but uh, yeah this process did begin with the general flight of capital from the west to the east and the southeast i think this is a good point to stop and take a short break and to our listeners we'll be uh, back in just a moment welcome back to all things policy So Ritul in the break you mentioned that you have a larger point to make about millennial subsidy before we progress to the discussion on why it is coming to an end so yeah the floor is yours please go ahead so this is interesting i was just having a discussion with my colleague today morning and uh, we were discussing about millennial lifestyle subsidy that how it's coming to an end and she made a rather interesting point wherein once she asked me what what is millennial lifestyle actually and to begin with the kind of lifestyle these subsidies was funding like because this is cyclical you know this money is moving here pe money vc money is moving to other sectors now which we already know that there is edtech and all. so this is very cyclical that okay there are the fuel prices are rising that is also one of the reason there's a labor global shortage of labor that is also one of the reasons so that price the subsidies ending and prices are rising so then she just asked me that what what is millennial lifestyle really in and if the subsidy that was funding this lifestyle was it really sustainable like an alternate has to come now what would that look like because i mean just to go at another sort of tangent that this the lifestyle this subsidy was funding was also a very carbon intensive lifestyle you know and with a huge massive carbon footprint and if on the contrary you have to build a rather different like shift the equilibrium what kind of services do we need do would we have wanted a world full of cars full of like your personal driver as uber would like to say i mean that would congest our cities to some crazy extent which are already congested and for that matter 
cheap food delivery would again like so many people uh, again huge carbon footprint with packaging blah 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 so just this can be opened up as a larger discussion what is millennial lifestyle and was this the right kind of lifestyle to fund in the first place what are your thoughts on it I, i'm sure kamil will have an interesting thought or shri whoever wants to take it like i as much as i like to think back now i don't think they were funding the right kind of lifestyle and i'm sure there's going to be another set of startups and new companies that are going to fund a new which is more in sync with the times that we live in which has lesser carbon footprint already there are startups blue is is a cab company which is just electric cabs etc so yeah yeah Huh. Certainly, like interesting points that you made, Rathul. But I think we are jumping one step ahead here. We are speculating about the future, and of course, a lot of thoughts which I would like to talk about. But before that, I would like to like pull the discussion back and you know focus on the present for a little bit, right? Before we move on, and one of the factors that you mentioned was you know interest rates, right? And interest rates are going up across the world now, which means uh, easy money is drying up, and uh, you know newspapers and media outlets are calling this the VC winter. you know where there's a shortage of uh, money to be funneled into all these startups in countries like india and the other factor of course was the pandemic right which changed a lot of things worldwide it has set a recession in the developed world i think recently this week imf has cut down its growth forecast for most countries in the world and uh, all that so the question i want to pose to you is also is that what do you think are the implications of millennial subsidy coming to an end and i think there can be three kinds one is what is the implications in terms of policy a b what are the implications for startups and companies which were waiting for this vc money to bail them out and three what are the implications for the customers who have now accustomed to a particular taste but that is no longer available so kamal rathul you guys want to take it up I think I can take the first one. So when we think about policy implications, we need to also understand this issue in the context of India. Again, I think Rathul will disagree with me here, but I again think that the way this issue is manifesting in the West is not going to manifest in India in the same scenario. So in the West, this entire debate is dominated by rising prices. consumer welfareism as we can say keep the price low and then consumers going to prosper but what this sort of lens does is that it skews our understanding of identifying the stakeholders as per the local context so when we see as i had mentioned earlier when we see the situation in the indian context we have a cheap labor supply we and hence the companies have the option of keeping the price low or not letting it go as higher as it should have or would have in the west by transferring it or extracting it from these multiple avenues that the company has and given that india is a very price sensitive market it would be the ideal approach for a startup or any company now what it does is that it puts the pressure in this new gig economy that was coming up right it, there was this huge workforce that was created who was depend, dependent on employment for this entire ecosystem for employment now this gets taken away and i think these are the stakeholders when we talk about policy implications these are the stakeholders that should be at the center and not really the consumers as when we speak about that they'll have to shell out more i think this would be sort of the first policy implication that comes to my mind second policy implication would be it drives from 
the strategy these startups have, right? The nature of the strategy of these startups is that they want to kill the competitor and corner the market. That's what they do through various instruments such as predatory pricing and competitive marketing and, and whatnot. Now, what happens is that when their deep pockets start drying out, not of one of you, but of a lot, a lot of startups are gonna either gonna get acquired or they're gonna go bankrupt, go insolvent. Now, this is a very dangerous scenario because what's gonna happen is one company or one startup is going to go on a buying spree and buy out all the dying startups. This creates a situation where one entity or few entities going to acquire a vast amount of market power, which is one of the reasons, one of the grounds of which demands an intervention from the government. Because when there is structured imbalance in the power of the market participants, there are structural risks that are posed to the economy as a whole, which again, I think we can talk about Amazon and US and how Lena Khan in her paper, The Antitrust Paradox of Amazon, she has explained how Amazon's entire strategy was built around acquiring as much market power as possible, which paid off the shareholders of Amazon. But at what cost? At the cost of small sellers, at the cost of so many stakeholders of the market. So I think this is the second, this is the second policy implication that we should talk about. That is when money dries out and power gets cornered in the hands of a few, how should the government react to it? And the former first bodies to act would be competition authorities because every merger and acquisition needs an approval from the competition authority. But again, the, this entire regime right now is dominated by the economic principles, which says that as long as the prices are kept low, as long as the consumer is benefiting from low prices, as long as you can show that consumers are benefiting from it, these sort of merger and acquisition passed the scanner of these authorities. What I'm trying to say here is that if we keep on concentrating on the rising prices, so what these companies will be forced to do is that they will, first of all, not increase the price at the cost of other stakeholders. And if they do so, they will be allowed to acquire more and more companies and hence acquire more and more market power, which is a bigger risk to the economy as a whole. And we can go into the details of how it is a structural risk to the economy. But I think I'm going to pause here. No, those are fantastic observations, actually, Kamal, because like you rightly said, it is not always about the customer, right, who is getting all these 50%, 60% discounts. It's actually about the faces of those who are delivering these services, like the workers in the gig economy, like you said, and these people anyway do not enjoy much social security or job security. And suddenly, I think just today in news, I saw that Baijus is planning to lay off some 2,500 people. And uh, these people have to live with the very, very grave consequences of uh, the 
the end of millennial subsidy and the other angle of course which you brought up was of antitrust right and a lot of startups could actually compete with these uh, big companies and in fact grow to outcompete them because they were backed by easy money and uh, that may no longer be the case which means the entrenched players in the market will get stronger however of course like an purely from economic standpoint the response would be like you know this is how markets function as long as you can compete you survive and uh, when you can't you simply shut down and uh, exit the market but yeah thanks for applying these soft camel ritul would you like to comment yeah i mean just uh, just in a sense these these unicorn startups have two options one is either to pass on the cost to the customer which is again in a very price sensitive very difficult or to cut their input their cost which is to lay off people or to make their whatever their production cost effective so that they have to factor in one that the, the easy money is gone the fuel prices are high or whatever that is actually driving this trend of increasing the easing out of the lifestyle subsidy but actually i want to i mean i want to be speaking on the behalf of customers here so on to the camel address the first part i want to address to the second the two other parts of the question one is what will happen to the customers how will they adapt and two is what will happen to the vc the startup ecosystem so i'm going to sort of merge it and say a large part of it will customers i think as kamal already mentioned in a price sensitive market will adapt i think we've already seen there is an increase in people using autos in place of cabs which is there's a drastic difference between the price of these two there will be one is the customer will adapt themselves people will start taking other forms of transport and this adaptation will also come will also be merged by the market forces wherein we've already seen the rise of rapido which is a two wheeler ride hailing platform so people will move towards cheaper alternative because like nobody can live live like in a really still the wage rates being low people can't afford an expensive lifestyle so they will move to alternatives which will come both from people's choices and markets as well and at the same time the fact that on how will companies acquire new customers because it was a traditional template of you give deep discounts that is how you acquire large amount of customers you make them sort of attenuated to your service addicted to your service and then once they are they are there you sort of charge them higher prices now that not that's not being the case so companies will have to look for creative ways to acquiring customers and i think that's already begun to happen i mean as shri and i have already discussed about it that one is buy now pay later is the new fad which a lot of these tech platforms have already started doing fintech is already one which is again which is a form of buy now pay later credit card growth has already increased in india so that is where you don't face the brunt of paying large of from amount right now but it is spread throughout companies across the board are competing for other ways and one is that you don't charge them right up front you spread out the cost across so buy now pay later is the new new thing yeah so largely this is what i think about what will happen to customer the startup ecosystem again i think also we need to understand that this is cyclical in nature as they're trying to ease off inflation in the western markets and that is why the fed rates are very high or the central bank rates are very high which ultimately as inflation sort of cools down it's going to get low and then again there's going to be this kind of money which will be back and needed to be invested in other avenues and that's where i think i want to go back to the thing that i was saying i think there will be a new equilibrium new kind of startups will come 
which is going to support to some other kind of lifestyle subsidy, another alternate. We already know the green economy is going to go big. So those startups will be the one I hope will be getting a lot of money. So, yeah, I think this is how I see the ecosystem to be evolving. But if you guys have more nuanced thoughts, better thoughts or some alternate thoughts, feel free to share. Also, I think we've already come, come quite far in this episode. Right. I am optimistic, just like you said. And this is cyclical at the end of the day. So, you know, the VC winter gets over and we have a new VC spring. And uh, maybe we'll see more innovations by startups, innovations in different fields. And we might have a different kind of lifestyle subsidy, something which is more carbon sensitive, climate change sensitive, like you hope for, uh, Ritul. Kamil, any parting thoughts, any final thoughts before we close the episode? No, no, no thoughts from my side. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ritul. Thank you, Kamal, for joining me on this episode. And we do hope that our listeners think about their lifestyles. And uh, I hope not too many of you have to make too many adjustments because of the end of the millennial subsidy. But in any case, thank you for joining us. And Just one final thing, Stream. Just if a college or a school kid were to ask you, are you going to say that this is not the best time to be a customer? I lived in the best times. Would you both say that? Yes, until the cycle kicks up again. <laughs> All right. Thank you for hosting us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for having us. Bye. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.